Waldy and Bendy. Hello, and welcome to Waldy and Bendy's Adventures in Art, the podcast they couldn't stop. I'm Valdemar Janusztak, art critic of the Sunday Times, Waldy to my friends, and I'm joined by the former art dealer and current TV giant, Bendor Bendy Grosvenor. How are you, Bendy? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm not too bad. Now, later on in the show, we've got an important interview with a museum director about issues of museums closing and very significant things like that. But uh, I thought we'd start with something else. Um, Last week, we talked about Leonardo da Vinci, and there was a sort of peg because it was his birthday in April. Now, the art world loves these pegs, doesn't it, Bendy? Sort of reason or an excuse to put on a show. Uh, And they can sometimes be incredibly hopeful. You know, uh, it's 150 years since Monet planted his first water lily. Who would have thought it? A fine anniversary. Indeed it is, yes. But, uh, you know, if dodgy pegs are good enough for the art world, they're certainly good enough for this podcast. Now, did you know that it's 410 years since the death of Caravaggio? 410 years! That's something we have to talk about, isn't it, Bendy? Where do you stand on Caravaggio? We must celebrate this uh, landmark moment. I love Caravaggio. I mean, he's, he's, we often overuse the term great artist in our game, don't we? But he's one of the few who actually revolutionized the whole history of art. Not many artists did that, and he did it. Yes, he, he definitely changed all the rules, didn't he? I mean, it must have been so exciting when suddenly this artist appeared who set everything at night, who filled his art with violence and excitement and dramatic moments. And of course, real people, you know, famously, a lot of his models were found in the sort of back streets of Rome. Uh, I think you can tell how important he was from the amount of followers he almost immediately picked up. With indecent speed, everybody was painting like Caravaggio. Yes, even um, great artists in themselves, like Rubens, starts off trying to be like Caravaggio, doesn't he? Not long after Caravaggio has has done his thing. Now, one of the things that interests me, you know, I, I every now and then I write about an artist who who I don't like for whatever personal reason. They've done something terrible in their lives, or they've been bad. And, and inevitably, I get a reply mentioning Caravaggio, because everybody knows that Caravaggio murdered somebody. So you always get these letters saying, yeah, but Caravaggio was a murderer. Uh, this, this thing, can you be a bad person and a good artist, is an interesting issue, because I actually swing both ways on it. Where, where do you stand on that, Bendy? It's an interesting and difficult uh, ethical dilemma, because there are, unfortunately, various categories of bad, aren't there? Caravaggio, we know, was a a pugilistic and rather angry person, and he had a fight with someone, and he killed them. Now, the early sources say that he probably didn't mean to kill them. It was just an argy-bargy that got a bit out of hand. Um, And the early sources, particularly people like uh, Bellori, writing not long after Caravaggio died, are quite clear that Caravaggio's stormy personality led to what Bellori called his dark manner. You know, that was the reason that Caravaggio decided to stick two fingers up to the art establishments and say, I'm not going to follow your rules about colour. I'm not going to follow your rules about drawing. I'm just going to start with a canvas. I'm going to paint straight onto it. And I'm going to light everything with a single dramatic light source. Now, I don't suppose you can easily upturn all those rules unless you're a bit of an argy-bargy person within you. So I think the two have to come together, don't they? And if we embrace one, then we can't necessarily reject the other aspect of their personality, can we? 
Well, it's something I've had to think about a lot. Let me give you another example. There's an artist called Eric Gill who um, painted or drew and printed these exquisite sort of innocent uh, views, often quite religious. His line is perfect. He's famous for inventing that great bit of typography, Gill Sands. He carved the front of the BBC, didn't he? He decorated the front of Broadcasting House. And you see, he was, we now know, a ghastly man. There have been biographies published that reveal that he raped his own daughters, he, he had all sorts of really perverted ideas and, and lived a disgusting life. So with someone like him, it turns me off his work. And I'll tell you why, because there seems to be this divide between the innocence, this rather spurious prettiness of the drawings and this ghastly dark life that he led. And that disconnect somehow for me invalidates him. With Caravaggio, the opposite happens. Caravaggio's darkness seems to feed into the work. And if, if, he feels any, if you feel anything from the work, it's this sense of guilt that he oozes. There's a darkness, a fearfulness, a sense yes. of a struggling soul, which yes. fertilizes the work in a good way. Yes, I entirely agree. And that's what I meant, actually, by at the beginning, I said there's various categories of bad, because Gill, I think, is the other extreme, as you say. And it, it's got to such a point with Gill, I find him so abhorrent that I can't even select that typeface on, on my Word documents anymore. Um, so I, I, don't, I can't abide his work and I can't abide him as a person. As you say, with Caravaggio, it is different. Uh, recently, I had the privilege of uh, filming in Rome in the Contarelli Chapel, uh, in the place where he, he is ground zero for Caravaggio's um, idea of lighting pictures so dramatically with all those paintings of St. Matthew. And in the painting of the martyrdom of St. Matthew, which is an unapologetically violent painting, there is Caravaggio himself, a self-portrait in the painting, looking onto it. And a number of people have said, oh, he's shocked by the violence of it all. But actually, I think if you look at his face carefully, he's sort of studying it in, in rather gruesome fascination. And at least with Caravaggio, he, he is not hiding that aspect of his character from us. It's there for us all to see. Yeah, he was, it's a trick, isn't it? It's a Baroque trick, the involvement of the artist personally in the action. And there were one or two artists before that did it. In fact, we're going to be coming on to one later in this very podcast. But basically, it was rare before. Michelangelo did it on the Sistine ceiling. He, he cast himself as the skin of St. Bartholomew in the last judgment so saint bartholomew was flayed alive and his skin was taken off him and in the self-portrait in the sistine chapel michelangelo is the skin you know which is a ghastly but also very powerful thing to do but caravaggio's self intrusions in his own work are really interesting and uh I, you know that church you, the contrary chapels in san luigi dei francesi isn't it and it's right, yeah in Rome and there's there's about two square miles of Rome where you can see almost all the great Caravaggios from the early years there's yeah. that church there's San Agostino the Santa Maria del Popolo and then you pop over to the Borghese gallery and if anybody who listened to this podcast has not done this trip you're mad you have to do it it's so exciting this Caravaggio after Caravaggio with hardly any walking in between yes and then you could see uh, rippling out his his impact on art history because all the other artists immediately try and copy him and you can see Caravaggesque moments throughout the whole of Rome it's uh, it's amazing that you can walk around one city and, and grasp that moment of art history so so tangibly I had two other great Caravaggio moments well I've had lots but there are two that stand out one is in Naples 
with the seven acts of mercy in the Trinity Church in, in Naples. So there's this one road in Naples that's famous for its pizzas, right? You know, pizzas were supposed to have been invented in Naples. And I remember years ago reading something about President Clinton going to Naples and eating at this famous pizza restaurant on this street. So I go to the famous pizza restaurant and I'm just reminded that across the road is the Caravaggio Church with the seven acts of mercy in it. I wander in there and he fled from Rome and ended up in Naples for a while, didn't he? And there is, it must be the greatest religious painting of the Baroque era. It's certainly up there. It's this extraordinary scene of seven acts of mercy, this charity, giving giving food to the poor and burying the dead and these acts all, all in one picture. And this fantastic, dramatic, black and white, throbbing, brilliant piece of art. It's still in situ, still in the place it was meant for. So exciting, so exciting. Well, um, you know, I've never been there and I haven't seen it. So um, now you've sold it to me. I'm going to go as soon as this is all over. <laughs> My other big tip, since we just before we move on, one more tip. Go to Messina in Sicily. The, the gallery in Messina has two great late Caravaggios that he painted in Sicily. I was there before Christmas. I went with my wife. We're the only two people. It's a Sunday morning. We were there all morning for about two hours staring at these great paintings, the Nativity and the Raising of Lazarus. And we were there for all this time. Nobody else came in. It was the most uplifting, brilliant experience. Bendy, you'll thank me for this. Go to Sicily. Go to Messina. Okay, I feel a grand tour coming on. <laughs> Talking of grand tours, we need to move on because we've got something important to discuss in the next section of the podcast. Isolation. Hello, welcome back. Now, Bendy, normally in this isolation section, we talk about things we can do when all the galleries are shut. But uh, you've done something far more useful than that. You've actually gone and found yourself a museum director to talk to. Now, tell us about this. Who did you speak to and, and what were the circumstances? I spoke to, he's a friend of mine, actually, Xavier Bray, who was the director of the Wallace Collection. And I was wondering how one closes down a museum. How do you put a museum into isolation? And what do you do when it's in isolation? And then perhaps more significantly, what can you do to bring it out of isolation? Is it even going to be possible? So we had a chat and he told me all about it. Xavier, only a few weeks ago, you were overseeing the loan of one of your great Titians of the Wallace Collection to the National Gallery's fabulous Titian exhibition of his poesy paintings. That seemed to represent a, a high point, a moment of triumph for the museum, and if I may say so, you personally, the first time the Wallace has ever lent a painting. And then suddenly you're faced with having to close the museum because of this pandemic. At what point did you first realise that you might have to close everything down? Um, well, it was a very high point for the Wallace. Things were going extremely well. And it was the night of the opening, really, that suddenly we all realised that we might be the sort of select few in the next few days uh, to see this exhibition uh, before it would uh, suddenly uh, come to, you know, hopefully not an end, but temporary. And it was very, it was tense, it was emotional. And at the same time, it was, it felt historic, but making the historic at this moment in time is, is a very difficult one to do. So suddenly you have to leave that exhibition, that high point, and think, how do I close a national museum? How do you close a national museum? I suppose the first thing is to make the announcement to staff, uh, to bring them together and, and to let them know that uh, you know, the decision has had to be made. 
And, um, and then it's the logistics to go with it, of course. So everybody has to go home. How are they going to work from home? The world is, is quite old-fashioned in its sort of digital tech. We're getting there, but uh, it took a good week before we could all sort of Zoom each other and do all kinds of, of things. Um, and, of course, you know, the main thing was safeguarding the collection. When you close down, it's almost more work than keeping it open, ironically, because really? you've got to decide who's able to come in, who are the key workers, and, yeah. and just make sure that um, it's, it's all safe. As a house museum, it probably isn't as dramatic as, say, a National Gallery or V&A. But still, um, it, felt, uh, it felt like we were losing our stage. It was a very, a very strange experience to suddenly, because our job is essentially to be the intermediaries between great art and the public. And suddenly, mm. not having that source of inspiration before us, was really, it really hurt. How does one be a, a museum director uh, remotely? Or are you tempted to, to go in and just wander around alone? The temptation to walk around on my own has been very great. <laughs> I haven't done it yet, and I'm hoping to do so. I'm, I mean, pers- on a personal level, my family, we all got the virus, so we were oh ill, gosh. and I have to admit we oh. were quite, um, you know, suddenly back to basics of just taking care of each other in our, in our flat in London. But um, the moment the energies come back, um, I've got lots of ideas of what one could do while we're closed and you know we one thinks straight back to the second world war and how the national gallery would once a month bring out a picture from the the mines in wales and show the picture to the to the nation now unfortunately we can't even do that uh, because of social distancing but you know we've got the digital means now so uh, equipped with my iphone I'm, i'm hoping to do a few little things without pushing it too hard because you know i think um I don't want to be the privileged one that is the only one allowed to enjoy such a great collection. I think it's important to offer people glimpses of, of, of the, the great works of art that we, we are looking after and that belong to the general public as, as taxpayers. But that, that leads us on to uh, a slightly broader question of museums engaging with the public digitally now. The Wallace Collection website is pretty good, but are you having to, to suddenly uh, change gear and think, uh, how you operate virtually, or are you thinking more? Well, we can just tough this out for a couple of months and then go back to how. I think works. there's there are two sides. I mean, one 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 side is that you know it's a bit like a witch has cast a spell on this palace, and we're all fast asleep, and we're waiting for the prince to come and kiss kiss us back to life, and then we'll come back to life, and it'll be like you know nature and spring. But I think at the same time, we, we feel very conscious and responsible to keep the, the heartbeat going within the collection. So the curators, conservators have all come up with themes um, based around the, the collection of you know, light and dark, spring, flowers. And actually, it's been a great opportunity for the curators and conservators to, to look at the collection in a different way and come up with different angles on the collection. Is there a point where if this lockdown goes into month three, month four, month five god forbid where you as a museum director have to think really carefully about the numbers uh the finances of everything and at what point do you start to get um slightly nervous about things like that um i'm already very nervous to be honest i think for the museum um uh, in this area it's a difficult moment because we are facing um you know our sponsors are, are losing money. Um, government is, of course, preoccupied by you know, the NHS and, and the sort of 
first sort of um, um, calls of, of support for the society and, and businesses and, and the arts always fall through the cracks and yet were key to any sort of symbol of reopening later on that you know the mm-hmm. arts are there for well-being and, and for creativity for culture and they bring hope and, and happiness so it's very important for, for the government to carry on supporting us through this and after this I think we're also just as worried about when we do reopen it's not going to be the a simple on and off it's going to be it's going to take time to to reconstruct ourselves so the the finances are a great worry how we're going to get through it it's very hard to say the government is is offering help how much help uh, we need to decide they need to decide and we need to to see if it really is going to get get us through we're all praying that this is going to last until at least the end of, of may early june i think we might just be able to survive if it goes on then i think we do have a major problem and i think we'll have to really rethink really quite hard how what what museums can do to survive do we have to change our opening hours do we have to to start thinking about charging um, you know there will have to be new ways of, of getting um, the finances sorted out again because um, we we can't operate with no finances so I think a, a mixture of, of government support and, and very generous patrons who might redirect their funds to just kick-starting our, our, our sort of museums back into, into life. I think that um, we'll definitely have to think along those lines. Goodness. Well, um, sounds like personally and professionally you've been really chucked in at the deep end. Thank you very much for talking to us, Sylvia. And I think all I can say is good luck. Thank you so much, Mendel. And um, see you very soon, I hope, in the galleries. Good. Fascinating. Uh, he's a lovely man, that Xavier Bray. And, and, and he's a great curator, too. I remember he put on that brilliant show at the National Gallery, The Sacred Made Real. It's all about Spanish polychrome sculpture of the 16th century. Amazingly interesting exhibition. Yes, he's, he's an he's a excellent man all round. Some good points there. Just to go to something he said at the end there, the possibility of charging for museum entry. Now, that was a, a, a bit of a shot out of the blue, wasn't it? I mean, that's a very dramatic suggestion, isn't it? It is indeed. Uh, I mean, free entry in the UK has been one of our great holy of holies that you can get into a national museum uh, free of charge, for supported by both Labour and Conservative governments for many years. Now, I think if that is now being questioned, it gives you just a glimpse into how serious this whole pandemic crisis is affecting our national museums, indeed museums across the country. If they're now going to have to think of charging for entry, well, uh, it gives us an idea that things are really bad and they're suffering quite significantly. Mm, indeed it does. I mean, I'm one of those that, you know, I've been on marches um, demanding free entry to museums back in the old days. The VNA temporarily introduced museum charges under Roy Strong. It was very, very controversial and, and became quite unpleasant. But as I think I've said on before on this podcast, it, it, there's no such thing as a free lunch in the world. And, and you know, we're, we all turn up at these museums expecting to be entertained for nothing. The money's got to come from somewhere. And if these things have got that serious, I'm afraid there's a whole lot of things we're going to have to start considering for the first time i'm afraid i think you're right i desperately hope we can keep free entry in this country but it's interesting isn't it we've seen in response to the economic crisis so far how all the usual suspects the usual industries have got their pitch in first for a bailout we've had the airlines uh, who arguably have done more to put us where we are than any other industry uh, they've been shaking their tin at the government and seem to be getting large handouts uh, museums i think have been uh, 
and they tend to be, don't they? A little bit deferential, a little bit quiet, there in the background, suffering silently. But when this is all over, we're going to need those museums to, to cheer us up. We're going to need them now to get us through this crisis. And I think the government's seriously got to get its checkbook out and, and do the right thing here. Well, it's part of this idea that art is, is just a great big luxury and easy to write off. And yet every single minute of art history argues the opposite. We go right back to the earliest cave paintings. You know, people went miles and miles and miles underground in conditions of complete danger with just a candle or a torch flickering away to, to see where they're going. And these places were full of tigers and snakes and bears, but they did it because they had to make art. We are not talking here about a luxury that you can pick up on the shelf at Tesco. We're talking about something that has made civilization work. Um, for me, I, I wrote a piece actually this week in the paper about um, the possibility of museums opening some of the important shows so that we might be able to wander around a bit. I mean, if, if you can control conditions in a supermarket where we keep our distance, we queue outside, yeah. we, we behave like sensible adults, surely the same could be said of an important art exhibition. Of course, we have to change the rules a bit, make sure everybody's very protected. But that Titian exhibition that's on at the National Gallery at the moment, it's actually yeah. hanging up there right yeah. now, yes. and no one's looking at it. Yes. And I think, as you also said in the piece, uh, with the internet and ticketing systems, it should be quite easy to uh, allow access at a staged manner for a safe number of people. I also liked your idea of uh, giving uh, tickets to, to those on the front line first, NHS workers and delivery drivers and so on. Why not? Well, I think it's something we could do. But anyway, we'll see what's happening in the world of isolation in the coming weeks. But now we're going to go to the fun bit of the show where you and I get to imagine what we would like to have on our walls if we could have absolutely anything. On the wall. So, Bendy, we're living in the museum without walls. We can have anything we want on our walls. What have you chosen for us? Well, I've slightly upped my game this week, actually. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm going big. Uh, Giovanni Bellini's uh, triptych, the Pizarro triptych, in the church of Santa Maria Glorioso dei Frari in Venice. I, I presume you know the picture. I know it well, actually. I've, I've seen it on many occasions. Wonderful, wonderful picture. Wonderful setup, wonderful altarpiece. Yes, I think for me, it has the holy trinity of what a, a great painting needs to do to work. Um, first of all, uh, it's in good condition. Uh, secondly, it's in its original frame, designed by Bellini himself. And thirdly, it's in its original location. Um, now, that's not going to stop me uh, taking it temporarily for, for my museum here. Um, so the painting is an altarpiece, and it shows an enthroned uh, Virgin Mary with her child, and on either side are two saints. And uh, within the original frame, um, there is an illusion of light coming in from the side, from a, from a landscape background. And uh, it's, it's quite easy with our modern eyes to get rather blasé about uh, pictures which, which try and create a sense of illusion and reality. But, but back in 1488, uh, Bellini was trying to trick people into thinking that they were seeing real subjects and also in the presence of God uh, himself. Now, what really helps with this picture to make that work is the, the integral frame and the fact that your eye sort of goes into it in a very 3D manner. And I'm happy to report that uh, over 500 years after it was painted, uh, the painting still works. It still has that magical effect on people. I was lucky enough a few years ago to be uh, filming in that church in front of that painting. And 
we had the place to ourselves and a rather jolly Italian priest came in and opened the place up for us and he just flicked the lights on. And for that moment, my eye and my mind was, was tricked into thinking that there were people there on the wall. And what made it even more magical um, was the fact that the, the, the priest then told me about the painting. And he didn't tell me about it from an art historical point of view. You know, normally it's the usual suspects, like, dare I say, like you and me standing in front of these paintings, waffling away about painting and technique. No, he told me about the religious aspect and the fact that for him, he was saying, and here is the Virgin Mary, and here is St. Benedict. And he was convinced by it. And for that moment, I was convinced by it. And that is what religious art is supposed to do, isn't it? Indeed it is. And of course, the location is so important, isn't it? Because it's not even in the main part of the church, is it? In the main part of the church in the Frari, you've got that astonishing Titian, the Assumption of the Virgin, this big red painting. Then you go into a sort of side chapel, don't you? And, and, and you turn left and there it is at the bottom of the chapel underneath the windows. And it really does look as if you're looking into a set of niches that are built into the wall. Um, and there's a lot of gold in the painting that, that, because, of course, Venice was so close to the east. Um, there's a lot of eastern mood and influence and these gold mosaics at the top, these Byzantine mosaics in the niche in which the Virgin sits. You know, if you go in that little chapel and the, the gold is gleaming and it's, it just has this sense of the miraculous reality of art, doesn't it? So it's a wonderful thing. Boa, do you know who the, um, do, you know, do you know who the saint on the left is? I mean, the, there's the Virgin Mary, she's got a saint on the right and a saint on the left. Uh, in fact, two saints in each niche. Do you know who the one on the left is? Uh, I don't. He's St. Nicholas of Barry. Now, I know this because St. Nicholas of Barry was the original Father Christmas. He was Santa Claus. Yeah, and do you know why? Because there's a famous story. It's, it's a rather weird story. Um, a, a, a dad had three daughters, uh, but he lost all his money. So he thought that he couldn't afford to give them a dowry. They couldn't get married, and they were going to become prostitutes instead. So this is a tragic situation, and so Nicholas of Barry heard about it, and he turned up at their house and he threw pouches of gold through the window, which, which then preserved them from prostitution, and they had their dowry and they could get married. So he became this patron saint of goodness and giving. Uh, so when Father Christmas comes down the chimney at Christmas and gives your kid a present, it all goes back to this giving the gold to the prostitutes. You might wish to tell them that this Christmas, Bendy. Yeah, well, actually, if Father Christmas could leave a bag of money and gold coins, that would be great, actually. Indeed. Now, um, my picture is one that I, I, was, I was hoped once to do a series about art and food, because I love eating, but also because food is so important in art in all its many aspects. And this is a picture I came across that uh, surprised me for a number of reasons. It's called The Ricotta Eaters, and it's by uh, a chap called Vincenzo Campi, who is one of those unknown Italian artists of whom there are thousands when you suddenly come across you think wow that's really good and it's painted probably in around 1580 so pre-baroque very early and very un-Italian looking so he was from Cremona Campi and what it is it's four people four sort of peasanty types almost Caravagesque in their reality so they've got these unglamorous faces. One of them looks like an old rogue. Another one's got a rather evil eye. There's a sort of buxom wench who looks more Flemish than Italian to me on the right, staring at us with one of those come-on smiles that, um, that Art was giving you at the time. And on the left, this mad-looking bloke in a red hat 
and they're all eating ricotta. They're stuffing their faces with this big bowl of ricotta cheese, literally stuffing their faces, and it's pouring out of their mouths. So it's a brilliant um, evocation of greed, and you see their teeth as well. In the, unusually, you don't often see teeth in, in, a, in early or late Renaissance art, but they're showing their teeth, and they've got an animalian grabbing for this food. So I thought, why would anybody paint this picture, and what the hell does it mean? Well, it turns out that ricotta was a sort of staple food of the poor. Now, nowadays, you only get it at Waitrose, don't you, in the, the posh cheese counter. But in those <laughs> days, if you were poor, you ate ricotta because it was, it was a byproduct of making better cheeses. And when you made oh. your parmesan, you had the stuff left over and you made ricotta out of it. So the poor ate it. So the poor ate ricotta. Um, but it, it, I suspect there was a kind of suggestion already that it may not have been all that good for you um, because this rather dark aspect to all this stuffing themselves of ricotta is mocking. And if you look at the... Uh, have you got that picture in front of you at the moment? Ben, I have indeed, see yes. Okay. okay. Can you see the white big bowl of ricotta that the woman's holding and the guy in the red hat is eating? Yeah. Can you see the shape of the ricotta, the shape that's been gouged into it? Uh, just about. It's a skull. It's a human skull. Two oh. eyes and a mouth. God, it is, isn't it? It is. Yes. So it's a, it's a prefiguration of a kind of death and darkness. Death and it's, you know, cheese. eat all this cheese and you're going to die. Um, <laughs> Uh, so, uh, I mean, I've been eating far too much during this lockdown. I'm desperate to, to go on a diet when I finish it. Um, I'm going to be laying off the ricotta, but I thoroughly recommend everybody to look out for Vincenzo Campi, one of these underrated stars of the pre-Baroque era, if you like. So that painting is going to warn you to eat healthily as over the coming months. It's a lockdown picture. Do not gulp down your ricotta in huge mouthfuls. That's the message here. Well, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Bendy. I've enjoyed it this week. I, I always enjoy it. Uh, but that's enough for us now. Let's move on. Let's move on to out there into the real world. Until the next time, bye-bye. Cheerio. Waldy and Bendy. Bendy.